In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Welcome to So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey, presented by Betches Media. This is an exploration of all pop culture, from the classic reality TV moments of the past and present to the latest Daily Mail headlines and everything in between. We'll dive into all the infamous and notorious messes you can't stop watching. We're looking at you, Tom Sandoval. Folks, welcome to an all-new episode of So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey. This is your pal Ryan, and this is one of your Thursday episodes. You're going to have two today. You're going to have the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City finale, and you're going to have this one. Um, And I would have put this out on Monday, but it was New Year's, and uh, so you're getting double trouble today. And this one actually is really special to me because I get to talk to a musical artist, and if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know how much I truly love music. Now listen, we talk a lot about reality television, we talk about movies, we talk about pop culture in general, but I truly, truly love music And I hope in 2024, I'll get to talk a lot more about it. But also, it's great to see that you guys will go with me on these journeys and potentially try out something that you might not have heard or listened to. And and maybe you'll find something that you like when we talk about these things. It's the only one of the best things about doing this is being able to point people in the direction of things that I like sometimes. Um, And, uh, you know, musical taste, I think, defines us. More than anything, you know, people say you aren't what you like. You're more than that. And I'm like, damn, no, I am what I like, period. That is that is entirely me. But today we have uh, the musical artist Claire DeLoon. She has uh, a musical project called Tiny Deaths and their EP I truly responded to. I got an email uh, from her manager through Betches. And I get a lot of emails like this, but I listened to the music and I really loved it. And I loved her story and what I really love about anybody in Um, I guess the performing arts, if you will, is that everybody has a journey. And I want to remind people out there how hard it is to get things done in this space, to actually be able to hold on to some sort of artistic credibility in a consumer market. And I feel like it gets harder and harder. And it's really hard to stand out when you have so much of everything. And Tiny Deaths, for me, stood out. And I can't wait to see where she goes from here. Uh, And I hope you like this interview because it was just, I I had such, I geeked out. I geeked out. And it's great because I didn't know her at all. And I love having those conversations where you just get to talk to somebody and and see what they're all about. So I think this is a great conversation. I hope you agree. Uh, But before that, we are going to talk about Gypsy. Rose Blanchard. I've been wanting to talk about her for a minute. Uh, If you don't know who she is, but that name sounds familiar, it's because she was recently released from prison, I believe on December 28th, um, after being a part of a plot to uh, unalive her mother. 
Now, you know, you might have watched the HBO documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest, which I think is just a fascinating look at this entire story. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. I rewatched it again last week, and I think uh, if you haven't, check it out. Of course, adult themes. But I wanted to talk about it also in the space of her becoming a pop culture figure. And it, it goes hand in hand with that episode I did yesterday with Beth Caras, the legal analyst from The Curious Case of Natalia Grace and Natalia Speaks. And I was talking to her about the idea that we have turned true crime, in a sense, into pop culture. We have Kardashianed true crime, in a way. And I'll give you a couple of examples of this. But also, I consume this stuff. I find it fascinating, just like a lot of you guys do. But I think... There is something on the other side of this that is potentially dangerous. I don't mean to be old fuddy-duddy and all of this ruin everybody's good times, but I genuinely worry about somebody like Gypsy Rose Blanchard. We're going to get into what she has done in the past and kind of the celebrity that she has acquired uh, throughout her prison stay, but really in this last week and a half, especially on social media. And I just get this bad feeling that something bad is going to happen because Imagine if you know a little bit about Gypsy Rose's life, what she has had to go through, and then a prison term, a very long prison term, and to get out and all of a sudden have over 6 million followers on Instagram, millions of followers on TikTok, every word is being picked apart. Everybody going, yes, queen, yes, oh my God, that's mother. You know, we've yassified Gypsy Rose online. And I sometimes feel like if you do not have your feet firmly planted on the ground, it's a very dangerous place to be if you don't really know how to live a normal life yet. Um, and I don't know, if, I, I don't know, I don't know if this is, I don't want to say a hot take. I, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody's genuinely excited and I am too excited for her to get on with her life. But when you inject celebrity into that, we see how it even works in reality shows. It takes people down bad roads. You know, celebrity is all well and good, but Bill Murray has that famous quote of somebody coming up to him and say, oh my God, it must be really nice to be rich and famous. He was like, well, it's nice to be rich. Fame is good. It'll get you a good table sometimes. But other than that, I would rather just be rich. A lot goes with that. I keep talking about re-listening to Matthew Perry's audiobook, his uh, autobiography, which I found very moving the second time through, um, you know, because he unfortunately passed away. But he talks a lot about celebrity in this book because him and his actor friends, when they were coming up in the business in Los Angeles, they all they wanted was celebrity. I mean, the acting was great, but what they really wanted was celebrity. Matthew Perry says he prayed to God and he didn't, he wasn't a big prayer. He prayed to God, please let me be famous. It wasn't let me be a good actor. It wasn't get me the best roles. It was let me be famous. And there's this part in the book where he was cast in Friends. They filmed the pilot. It got picked up. Everybody was saying it was going to be a huge hit. He knew it was going to be a huge hit. But nobody in that cast was famous yet. Jennifer Aniston, David Schwimmer, Matt LeBlanc, uh, Lisa Kudrow, Courtney Cox. Uh, they were uh, David Schwimmer, They were all just actors trying to make it. But they all knew they had something special. And James Burroughs, the director of a majority of the episodes of Friends, uh, an iconic television director, uh, he has a, has a great autobiography you guys should check out as well that I listened to last year, James Burroughs. But he was saying that they went to Vegas on a private jet through Warner Brothers before the show premiered, and they watched the pilot episode, James Burroughs, the director, and the cast. And he gave each of the Friends cast members 100 bucks. 
And he said, listen, go and party tonight. Make stupid decisions. Do it in public because this is the last time you're going to be able to do anything in public without you being every, every move that you make being watched. And Matthew Perry said he was right. You know, you know, like, you know, if I put $200 down on black in Vegas, everybody would be like, oh my God, come over here. Matthew Perry just put $200 down on black in Vegas. Every move was dissected. Every bad move was watched. And Matthew Perry made a lot of bad moves, admittedly, he said. But I thought that was so interesting is we all want this fame. We all want this unobtainable thing to so many people, but we, we, we really put such stock, such weight in it. We even see that in Real Housewives. We even see it with Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, which we'll talk about, about Monica wanting to get to the place where these other ladies have, the, 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 these other ladies are. But these other ladies, at the end of the day, do you want to be truly like Lisa Barlow? We're like, yes, queen, slay. But at the end of the day, would you want that? Would you want to wake up with a thousand people trolling you online, making memes of your every move. And some of them, you know, a majority of them, sure, are positive, but a lot aren't. How would that do to your psyche? Are you strong enough for that? And Matthew Perry said for, you know, it wasn't. It messed him up. It messed him up. And it was the thing that he wanted the most. And I thought that was such an important lesson. So Gypsy Rose Blanchard, if you do not know, uh, let me give you some basic facts. And uh, this is not a true kind true crime podcast, and it probably never will be, but I did want to walk you through some of the basic uh, things about her story because uh, it, it's very interesting. So Gypsy Rose Blanchard's mom, Dee Dee, uh, falsely claimed her daughter was suffering from different illnesses until Gypsy arranged for her then boyfriend to kill her mother in 2015. And this mother, Dee Dee Blanchard, really was an awful, awful woman. Um, And if you watch the documentary, you see, you know, even her own family was just like, this was a horrible woman. But she had her daughter, Gypsy, and gave her daughter, Gypsy, every illness. Even said that Gypsy couldn't walk, couldn't move her legs, and would tell Gypsy, don't move your legs around the doctors. And she would doctor shop. She would go from one doctor to another. When Gypsy was eight years old, Dee Dee described her as suffering from leukemia and muscular dystrophy, and she said she required a wheelchair and a feeding tube. And the list of problems that Dee Dee related about her daughter would go on to include seizures, asthma, and hearing and visual impairments. Now, she didn't have a majority of these. She also had Gypsy on a prescribed litany of medications. This is from an article on biography.com, you guys. The list of problems that Dee Dee related about her daughter. Would, uh, yeah, so due to Dee Dee's actions, Gypsy was prescribed all the medications and had to sleep using a breathing machine. And she said, you know, in an interview, Gypsy said, oh, I mean, you know, I put the breathing tube on and it actually made me breathe worse because she didn't actually have these problems. Um, and when Gypsy's teeth even rotted, perhaps due to the medications, missing salivary glands and just basic neglect, they were just pulled out and not replaced. And the thing was, Dee Dee was asking money for, from the public. They had a house built by good Samaritans, all of these things. Now, as experts believe Dee Dee had a mental illness known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Now, if you remember that, you probably remember that from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills uh, of Lisa Rinna. I don't even mean to laugh because it's horrible. And the Yolanda Hadid, the Munchausen syndrome, which made her fabricate her daughter's ill health in order to receive attention and sympathy for taking care of a sick child. 
Um, and even one doctor was on to them and on to the scam that DD was kind of running and DT DD would kind of exhaust every measure. And even the doctor was like, well, it really wasn't worth speaking up because she would just go to the next doctor. She would go to the next doctor. She would file more paperwork. It was wild. DD also claimed to be a victim of hurricane Katrina. She was not. Um, and she uh, got free trips to Disneyland. I mean, just the world, Disney World, charity-sponsored uh, visits to concerts. And Dee Dee really basked in the attention of having a very ill daughter. But she wasn't ill. Now, when Gypsy was 14, she saw a neurologist in Missouri who, this is who I was talking about, kind of believed that this was Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Um, as Gypsy grew older, Dee Dee began to lie about her age, going so far as to alter the dates on Gypsy's birth certificate to make her daughter seem younger, but Gypsy was still becoming harder for Dee Dee to control because people grow up. People want more freedom. You know, you remember that time when you were a kid, when you were pushing to have more and seeing a world out there, and her world was being so controlled by her mother. And also that guilt that Gypsy probably felt of being her mom's only real friend. You know, that thing of like, you are your parents' lifeline in so many ways. Now, in 2011, Gypsy tried to get away from her mother by running away from a man she met at a science fiction convention. But Didi soon tracked them down via mutual friends. She convinced the man that Gypsy was a minor, though she was actually 19 at the time. Now, if you've heard Gypsy's voice, it's a very squeaky voice, or was a very squeaky voice. She has a very certain way about her with the smile, and, you know, she does seem to be, there's a little bit of arrested development there where she does really come off like a child when she speaks, especially in the documentary uh, Mommy Dead and Dearest. Um, but Gypsy also stated that her mother would sometimes hit her and deny her food. There are a little bit of similarities with the Natalia Grace case, which we just talked about in yesterday's episode. Now, Gypsy eventually managed to get back online after her mom had taken it away from her. She joined a Christian dating site. Oh, good. The Christians are involved where she met Nicholas Gojon, and she told him the truth about her mother's actions and ended up asking him to kill her mother so they could be together. Now, in June 2015, he came to her house and he stabbed her mom while Gypsy waited ears covered in the bathroom. And then Gypsy and Gojon returned to home in Wisconsin where they were found by police. Gypsy had twice posted to the Facebook account she shared with her mother once writing that the B-I-T-C-H is dead. And she later explained she made the post because she wanted her mother's body to be discovered. After Dee Dee's murder, many people who'd known Gypsy wondered why she'd gone so far as to kill her. Since she could walk, she simply could have exposed Dee Dee's lies by standing up in public. Yet Gypsy had been conditioned to think no one would believe her. She explained, I couldn't just jump out of the wheelchair because I was afraid and I didn't know what my mother would do. I didn't have anyone to trust. The fact that Gypsy had spent her entire life being controlled and monitored by her mother, she wasn't allowed to go to school, although Gypsy was of normal intelligence. Dee Dee told everyone her daughter had a mental age of seven. When they were out in public, Dee Dee constantly held Gypsy's hand, squeezing it when she wanted her daughter to be quiet. So Dr. Mark Feldman, who is an expert in Munchausen syndrome by proxy, explains the control was total in the same sense that control of a kidnapped victim sometimes is total. Her daughter was, in essence, a hostage, and I think we understand the crime that occurred subsequently in terms of a hostage trying to gain escape. 
Now, as Gypsy's medical records documented the, abu- the abuse she'd been subjected to, her lawyer was able to arrange a plea deal for the charges she faced in Dee Dee's death. In 2016, Gypsy pled guilty to second-degree murder. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison and served 85% of her sentence before being released December 28, 2023. Now, Gojon was found guilty of first-degree murder in 2018 and was sentenced to life in prison. Gypsy has stated it was only after Dee Dee's death that she realized the extent of her mother's deception. While Gypsy had known she could walk and eat regular food, she believed she had leukemia. Now today, Gypsy uh, is healthy. She also enjoys more freedom in prison than in the life she shared with Dee Dee. However, when asked by Dr. Phil if she was glad her mother was dead, she stated, I'm glad that I'm out of that situation, but I'm not happy that she's dead. This is an article from biography.com by Sarah Kettler. I think that's a really good summation of all the past events. Folks, summer is just around the corner, so it's time to say goodbye to those jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Now, I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily, I found Quince. Now, I have a lineup of timeless pieces I want that will keep me looking fresh year after year. I got a pair of tan shorts. I got a pair of green shorts. I cannot wait to style these for summer. And I got to tell you, the quality is great because Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from third performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman by partnering directly with top factories and passes that savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. So you can feel good about what you're wearing on every level. So upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash so bad for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash so bad to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash so bad. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, like I said, I really recommend that documentary if you're more interested in this story. Now, she is currently of age 32 years old, born July 27th, 1991. Now, we talked about her life in prison being better than her life out here, and it truly was. She even used her commissary to buy every Taylor Swift album. And you guys know, I've talked about prison a lot. My ears perk up when I'm like, wait a sec, you can have albums in prison? Well, I can listen to today's guest, Tiny Deaths in Prison? Count me in. I'm just joking, you guys. But uh, it is wild to think that this person had a better life in prison than they did in the outside world. She even got her GED in prison. Now, she also, uh, some things about Gypsy Rose, she had a failed engagement once in prison, but now she is married. She got married in prison. She got married to a gentleman named Ryan. Uh, It is not me, uh, unfortunately. Ryan Scott Anderson. He's a special education teacher from Louisiana while she was, they got married while she was still behind bars in 2022. Now, she gets out of prison, you guys. She goes on social media. Uh, I noticed last week there were cameras following her around. And of course, there are cameras following her around because now she is considered a celebrity, but also 
She's already signed up for a docu-series. It's going to be on Lifetime, and it's going to be on Lifetime starting January 5th, this Friday, with three more episodes airing through January 7th. It's called The Prison Confessions of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. And they obviously have been filming interviews with her, filming her time outside of prison. It's only been a couple of days, but this thing was like following the queen's funeral. They were like following her everywhere. In fact, she got released from prison and she had tickets to the Kansas City Chiefs game because she desperately wanted to meet Taylor Swift. Now, the Missouri, uh, the Missouri police said she was not allowed to go to that game. And she said she understood, even though she had already bought tickets, had tickets. And I will always wonder if Taylor Swift would have taken a picture with Gypsy Rose Blanchard. You, do you ever think about that, Taylor Swift? Like, where would you fall on that? Would you want to see a picture of Taylor Swift with Gypsy Rose Blanchard? Because you, your heart does go out to her, right? Your heart does go out to Gypsy Rose Blanchard. If you see the, the suffering that she was put through, but at the same time, she was part of a horrific crime. Life is so messed up sometimes, isn't it? It is so messed up. It is one of those brain busters. She did something horrifically wrong, and she wasn't the person that had the knife, but she was the one that suggested doing it. But she was also a prisoner. I mean, go down that road. What do you guys think about that? And, uh, you know, I've gone back and forth on it because if you think of it like a hostage situation, you're going to get out of there by any means necessary, right? But she did that. Also, she did her time. She served her full sentence or 85% of it. So she served her term to the state and now she's out. But the thing that worries me is what we then do with it. Because we will take a story like this, we will blow it up like I'm doing right now, and we will throw celebrity at it. We will throw all oh, a thousand compliments and that can feel really good at first. But remember, whatever goes up will come down. It will come down. And I've already seen a little bit of it. And I hate to make this comparison to Miss Ariana Maddox, but why not? Um, at a certain point, even if you agree with everything that she's done, you're going to be like, wait a sec, too much now. She's getting too much. It's gotten ridiculous. It's gotten ridiculous. And I get worried. And somebody that does not have the language in dealing with celebrity, I just hope she has the right people behind her, the right people that are managing her at this point, because a lot of money are, is probably already changing hands. I mean, honestly, you guys, she started on Instagram for the first time just last week. And at this point, she, no, no joke, has 6.2 million Instagram followers. 6.2 million Instagram followers. Are you, I mean, that's wild. I have at least 1 million. No, you know, like, I mean, but think about it. That's wild, right? I, you know, Courtney Kardashian has 224 million. Well, that's actually pretty good. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Courtney Kardashian unfollowed me. No, I'm joking. She never followed me to begin with, but, uh, okay. Let's, let's, let's take some housewives. Okay. Let's go to Kyle Richards. Let's look up Kyle's follow. Kyle Richards. That's 4.2 million followers on Instagram. Gypsy Rose Blanchard has more than Kyle Richards. Isn't that wild? Now, Lizzo, who we talked about today in the interview with Tiny Deaths, she has 12.5 million. Gypsy Rose coming up there to Lizzo almost has half of what Lizzo has. And Gypsy Rose hasn't even gone on tour yet. I don't even think she can play the flute. Isn't that fascinating, though? Let's see who Gypsy Rose follows. I looked at this and I thought this was interesting and very telling in how she's going to hit social media. Now, she follows the first one, Will Smith. Okay, Will Smith. 
Um, guess she's not a Chris Rock fan. She follows Elizabeth Smart, who actually, you know, uh, a survivor herself. I thought that's an interesting follow. Uh, she follows E! Entertainment, Entertainment Weekly, USA Today, BBC News, ABC News, Access Hollywood, Extra TV, Today Show, Vanity Fair, CNN, Time, Good Morning America, Us Weekly, New York Times, E! News, People, Penguin Random House, Apple Books, <coughs> Amazon, Barnes & Noble's Bookseller, uh, Anna Navarro-Cardenas, Alyssa Farah Griffin, <coughs> Sonny Hostin, Joy Behar, Whoopi Goldberg, The View. So obviously Gypsy Rose is trying to get on The View or she is already booked on The View. Let's see. Also following Vogue magazine, <coughs> Teen Vogue, Entertainment Tonight, Inside Edition, Nancy Grace, Dr. Phil, Charlie Neff from TMZ, Kim Kardashian, TMZ, Lifetime TV, um, and then I think some personal people, Aaron Lee Carr, who is an amazing documentarian, also did the documentary for Mommy Dead and Dearest. She follows the Today Show, A&E Networks, Lifetime Movies Networks, ABC, Good Morning America, Brett the Hitman Hart, he's a pro wrestler, Travis Kelsey, Eric Church, the country singer, um, Taylor Swift, and then her husband, Ryan Anderson. And Ryan Anderson now has 194,000 followers. Her book is now available for pre-order. This is an ebook called Released Conversations on the Eve of Freedom. Now, this would probably be fascinating, but it's a little bit of a money grab, right? It's an ebook, so that means they weren't prepared to release a hardcover copy of this. But uh, this is what I'm saying. Like, take the money. Sorry, the laundry's done. Take the money when you, you, can, you can get it, right? But uh, where do we go from here? So we're going to get the, the Lifetime docuseries. We'll see her pop up on probably The View and a bunch of other things. What is the first podcast she's going to do? Do we have her on So Bad It's Good? I don't know. But anyways, the other thing that I was kind of like, oh, no, don't. No, 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 no. What are we doing here? Was today, this was the uh, People Magazine headline article. Gypsy Rose Blanchard defends husband from online comments, talks sex life. Quote, the D is fire. Gypsy Rose in an Instagram comment told her husband, Ryan Anderson, not to worry about negative comments. So obviously we are already starting to get negative comments on the old Instagram, the social media. And this to me was wild. She commented on one of Ryan Anderson's Instagram posts. Gypsy told her husband, quote, don't listen to the haters and that the couple doesn't owe anyone anything before dropping in a reference to their sex life. Quote, besides, they jealous because you are rocking my world every night, Gypsy wrote. Yeah, I said it. The D is fire. Wow. That's wild, right? I mean, this is what I'm talking about, about celebrity having so many eyes on you. You know, comments can hurt, but then you're forced to sometimes defend those comments. And then you drop a reference to getting railed potentially every night. And that this guy, Ryan's D, is on fire. The D is fire, which great. That's amazing. But it, it it's starting to potentially go down a weird road because, right, she doesn't know how to navigate this. And in a lot of ways, she still is a child. But I don't know if I want to hear that. She, I mean, like, good for her, I guess. But I get worried about what happens next. I get worried. I mean, she's 
not used to living with this man that she is married to. And I'm not saying this relationship isn't good or any, I have no bearing or judgment on that, but I will say we will as an audience start having judgments on it when it hits TV. It's like what we do with reality television. It's what we do with all of pop culture. And I just hope she has the right people behind her, the right system, the mental health system in place because so much is going to get thrown at her after being in prison for eight plus years that I do worry about Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Do you guys, am I, am I out of my depth here? Uh, it's just something that I woke up to today and I was like, ooh, I want to talk to you guys about it and see what you think. Anyways, let's get to our guest. I think this is a great conversation. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit of her music now, just a little 30-second clip of it. Um, it's called Take the Bullet, and I think this is a, just such a moody, atmospheric song that I can picture in so many movies. But I can't wait for you to meet her. Her name's Claire DeLune, but like I said, the musical project she's a part of is Tiny Deaths. I'll put that in the Spotify caption. And uh, get ready, folks, because uh, later today... Or, you know, by the time the morning, you'll have a Real Housewives of Salt Lake City full recap, including recaps of all the social media things from all the housewives that they posted. Have a great rest of your day, folks. time inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to So Bad It's Good, presented by Betches Media. Now, today is a really unique episode. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I deeply love music. We talk a lot about pop culture, reality shows, and yeah, we are silly, but I uh, I love music so, so dearly. And when I was presented with the opportunity to talk to our next guest, I was I was reading through it. And I didn't know. And then I listened to the music and I immediately responded to the music. And then I dug in a little deeper uh, and I just kind of fell in love uh, with this project and and with this person in a sense. And uh, we're going to talk about her career, which has been really fascinating so far. Uh, her music, it creates this kind of audio landscape that I think a lot of us or me, especially, I felt like I was in a movie the whole time, the space that the music has, the vocals that are kind of haunting yet uplifting at the same time. There's so many visuals. I could picture myself taking a road trip or having a glass of wine late at night and thinking about the year that was 2023. And I think that's what really music is there to do is really to be the soundtrack to our lives, even though the artist themselves is is 
going through something very personal and they're sharing us, sharing that with us. Now, uh, her music has been compared to people that I love, Fantagram, Purity Ring, Beach House. If you don't know Beach House, you guys, I was listening to Depression Cherry uh, a couple weeks ago, really hit me all over again, but it was so great. I would even say a little bit of Cocktoo Twins, which I got into this past year. Um, so I am so excited. But then I started looking into uh, the artist that we're going to talk to today, and she's had this insanely amazing career up to this point. I mean, listen, in 2013, I believe she was part of an all-girl R&B hip-hop group called The Palace, which also had Lizzo in in the group, but also not just that. She is a sports writer. I was just reading her articles about NBA basketball on The Guardian, and it, I was just kind of blown away. So I can't wait to talk to her all about all of this. Her project uh, is called Tiny Deaths, and she has an amazing new album that you can find out on all streaming platforms called Spirit of the Staircase. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Claire DeLune. Claire, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, that was an amazingly kind intro. It kind of made me emotional. I was like, <laughs> when you well, were I talking guess... about the landscapes that the music reminds me of, because that's like the exact goal of of what I'm going for. So that feels, I feel very seen. Thank you so much. Well, it's very, I mean, it, I, I really can't... Uh emphasize that enough. It's so lush, but at the same time, it leaves so much space for us to put our own thoughts into. And you can really sit with this music. And I was kind of playing it on repeat and it got, my reaction to it got stronger each time I was playing this album. And I I just, I think the audience sometimes doesn't understand what goes into uh, the artistry of the media that we consume. And I thought, what an interesting way to be able to talk to you about this because you know where you started at age five correct writing music or is that when you started getting interested do you remember at age five like what did you respond to musically that young oh my gosh I mean well the funny thing is is I, I feel like I didn't really develop my own taste in music until maybe a few years after that. So I was kind of just like <laughs> passively. My mom listened to a lot of like Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, a lot of like 70s, 60s, 70s kind of singer songwriter stuff, Jackson Brown. Um, so I definitely was hearing like very high quality lyrics just in the background of my whole childhood. Um, but then I grew up, you know, in the early ni- early mid nineties, uh, was when I was that age, and so it was like the height of kind of like bubblegum pop and like kind of pop R and B and stuff. So my first like things that I liked were obviously like just like the straight like Britney Spears, Spice Girls, like all that stuff. Yeah. But then also like TLC and like Aaliyah and um, like Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, and that kind of stuff. So. I don't know. I feel like all those influences kind of made it made it in there eventually. Um, yeah, I mean, like your your voice, your your actual singing voice has this mix of everything. Like I could hear like certain R and B like kind of riffs, but at the same time, there is this alternative uh, aspect to the music yeah. and the the production that I really responded to. And I, I just I, when you start that young and you are still insanely young, I mean, <laughs> is it interesting for you to actually go through and and feel? your taste change and feel what you want to actually produce. I mean, I feel like that's got to be so hard to like, what do I feel right now in this moment to say true to myself? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting for me because now I'm at a point where I'm in my early thirties now. So now I can look back and be like, oh, I kind of see where this weird kind of winding path I took to get to where I am, like how all these different things influence the music. 
Um, because I've never really like tried to emulate anyone or like never like heard something and been like, oh, I want to be like that. But I really do think that because I like to your point of all the, you know, things that you listen to, like I love cocktail twins. I love like that kind of 80s, like shoegazy dream pop stuff too. I love like I, my high school years were like the strokes and yeah, yeah, yeahs and like just that kind of grungy indie rock. But then also I love like Beyonce and like, I mean, my favorite records in the last couple of years were Snow Allegra and SZA. So yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. you can kind of hear all that stuff in my music. And it's kind of interesting how you're sort of just like a product of of what you consume, whether or not it's intentional. Yeah. I mean, we're a part, yeah, everything there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and I always think of this show as a mashup, that it doesn't have to just be one thing. And yeah. the people that listen to this or listen to music, we have varied tastes. It's not like I just listen to this. Yeah. I can listen to everything. And there's something about usually everything that I can find enjoyable, but yep. it is interesting to find all we really have is what speaks to us. And I feel like this seems like I don't know you, but I feel like you're sharing something very personal with this album. If you've heard the record, you know me at least a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Ripped from the pages of my life. No, Um, I mean, well, how do you approach something, especially being in the industry now for a a long time? I mean, like I said, you were in the chalice or, you know, and was that 2013? Yeah, that was like 2011 through 2013. So, So, you know, I think we're in year 2023 right now. You have 10 10 years, years, like, (laughs) How do you develop like being confident enough to share what you're sharing now and to, I mean, it's an amalgam of a lot of different uh, musical genres, but how do you feel confident enough to be like, this is how I feel now and I do want to share this with people because this music is accessible, but it's also not Britney Spears. It's not Mariah Carey. Oh man, that's such a good question because I feel like that's been something that has been such a journey for me is... Not even just like the sharing, because the lyrics, I've always written quite kind of personal, intimate lyrics, um, just because that's the way I process things. And I don't really let myself think about the fact that people are going to hear them (laughs) until very late in the process. (laughs) And by that point, I'm already kind of pot committed. So it's like, well, (laughs) here it is. Um, But as far as musically, I think it took me basically until this year, because I was telling you um, before this, like this is my first time co-producing and having it be like a solo record in the sense like I had my hands in every single element of these songs. And it was really like my my taste and my uh, aesthetic and vision executed. And I think it took me up until this point to like trust my own taste and trust my own artistic vision because I think I had a lot of like imposter syndrome where I was like, well, why would anyone care? Like what I have to say or like what my tastes are and like, I should probably defer to all these people who've been doing this so much longer. Um, but I think I got to a point where, yeah, the years just started to add up and you're just like, well, but I've kind of been doing this for a minute. And, and I think, I think I, I have, you know, a point of view and an aesthetic and like something that's mine and, um, and maybe that's worth something, you know, and just kind of giving yourself that benefit of the doubt of like, well, if you're still here and you're still doing it, then like maybe you also have taste <laughs> and maybe yeah. your, your opinion matters too. So I think this was the first time I ever really felt like emboldened to execute my own vision and be like, this is exactly how I want this to sound. And I'm not going to like rest until it sounds how it sounds in my head. 
you know. How how long did the actual production of this album take? I think a lot of people don't really realize what goes into putting an album together. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear about people putting it together over years. Sometimes you're like, oh, I wrote that song. Uh, Paul McCartney said he wrote yesterday in like 30 minutes or something ridiculous. How long did this album take you from start to finish? From start to finish, it took three years. <laughs> Ooh, wow. And for seven songs, which is not a great uh, like race, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, I, but it partially it was because like some of it was done for quite a while, and then it was like finding the right um, label home from it for it. And I actually ended up, I'm sure we'll end up talking about basketball yeah. or something at some point. But I ended up yeah. kind of circuitously signing to a record label owned by an NBA franchise, Golden State <laughs> Entertainment, um, which was a really funny full circle, awesome full circle moment for me. Um, but so that took a while. But even just the creating of the songs, I would say the songwriting process for me has always been pretty efficient as far as like the first draft. And I think the difference, and I've heard other artists talk about this as well, but I think the difference is like when I was younger, like when I was in my 20s, I kind of had, I was quite um, precious and like kind of sanctimonious about my songwriting in that whatever the first draft was, I was like, this is what came to me in the moment. And so this is the fine, this is like what it should be. This is what it's meant to be because this is what it was in the first draft. And I, to me, I think of it as like songwriting, like that's kind of the art of it, right? It's like whatever comes to you in the moment. But yeah. I also consider it a craft now. And so that's the art. And then for me, the craftsmanship of it is taking that like creative expression that you had in that moment and kind of refining it, whittling away at, at it like you would like, at, you know, like a, a piece of wood or marble or whatever, yeah. and kind of refining it and making it something that is like more executing like your vision as a craftsman. So that's the part that takes a really long time for me. It's like I'll have a song and I'll maybe write it quite quickly and then I'll go back and I'll be like this could be better, this could be better, this could be better. I could I could say what I'm trying to say here in a way that's either more succinct or or more like true to the yeah. tone of the song. And that part takes forever for me. And honestly, I could still be doing that right now with these songs. <laughs> yeah, how, do, well, how do you know when to step away? Like how do you know when something is finished? Um, at a certain point when your label is like, you're supposed to turn this in <laughs> however many months ago. But also I think, I think for some of these songs, um, there were like really profound moments where like I heard, like I remember, so I remember my mixing engineer, Dave Sermonara had sent me, um, a revised mix for one of the songs. I had had notes on his first mix and he sent me, it was for the song Liar. And he had sent me another mix and I was driving to go spend the weekend with my friend in Ansborego in the desert. And I was driving through this like desert landscape and I put on the mix and it was so perfect. And I just started bawling in my car because it just was like <laughs> a culmination of like, I wrote that song on acoustic guitar in 2020. So it was like a culmination of so much that I had to get to that point. And it just sounded so true to like exactly what I ever dreamed it could sound like. And that is like the most rewarding thing you could ever experience. I feel like as an artist is just having like your vision and having it perfectly executed. Cause it's so it's even when you know exactly what you want, sometimes it's just so hard to translate what's in your heart and mind yeah. and put it out there. Um, would you say there's an overall theme to spirit of the staircase in these songs? Yeah. Um, so, so the name spirit of the staircase is based on, um, much like Tiny Deaths is based on a French phrase, Spirit of the yeah, Staircase guys, uh, yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> is the, also. The, 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 um, 
<laughs> the tiny death, yes. Yeah, exactly. A spirit of the staircase. So I heard um, when I, I lived in Paris very briefly, uh, and I heard this phrase there, Sprita Scalier. I have a horrible French accent, as they love to make fun of me for there. But um, <laughs> it, it, the direct translation is the spirit of the staircase. But the meaning is like that phenomenon when you think of the wrong, right thing to say, but too late. Like when the moment has passed and then you think of the right thing to say. And I just thought that was like a really good distillation because pretty much all the songs on this record are about kind of processing a relationship in hindsight. Um, or at least like in that kind of – a lot of the songs take place kind of in that in-between where you're technically broken up or it's technically over, but you're still – there's still kind of like some threads that haven't been fully cut. Um, so yeah, so that's that's kind of the theme is just sort of like when you're when – you're, when you haven't fully um, – exercised the the ghosts yet but you're you know that you need to get out of it i mean i don't even know if you ever exercise ghosts fully in relationships i feel like threads always exist our entire lives (laughs) um but i was you know i was thinking about this because i think you are opening up for somebody in january potentially in san francisco live i don't know if that's correct or not i mean are you going to start touring with this music in 2024 um, so I did a little, a few dates already uh, in 2023, did um, LA, uh, Portland. I was supposed to do Seattle. That ended up getting rescheduled and is now happening in January. Um, and yeah, so we've just, we've just done like a couple uh, dates, but um, yeah, I mean, I hope to play more for sure. I think there'll, there'll be another LA show um, next year. Yeah, because you played the Lodge Room, I think, this year, which I, I, yeah. I love that space. But I, the reason I was asking was just that when you do an incredibly personal album and you're talking about threads of a past relationship, I was mm-hmm. watching, uh, I went to U2 at the Sphere this past weekend. Oh, cool. I, w- I, it, I mean, it was really, truly amazing. But I was also wondering, you know, Bono does a great job of still selling the music like this, you know, like you believe that this truly means something to him. And I always wonder yeah. for artists like that, you know, putting themselves into their own lyrics night after night after night in front of an audience and being incredibly vulnerable. Like, yeah. I just wonder how you do that when you have these incredibly personal stories. Do you have to disassociate on stage? Do you do you go fully into it and share that? Because I feel like you're leaving yourself in this really vulnerable, raw <laughs> space if you, you tour sure this are. album. Um, I think it would probably be more sustainable as a person if I did disconnect because I think it is it really does feel like this sort of like emotional roller coaster every time I perform these songs, but I can't. <laughs> so, and I kind of like, <laughs> I kind of like, I, I feel like to me, a big part of at least the performances I connect to and like the singers that I feel really strongly connected to their work are the ones that like you do really feel like they're in it and that you believe yeah. them. And so I kind of have always just tried to like literally picture like, the, the experiences I'm singing about or picture the person I'm singing about or whatever when I sing. Um, so for me, it's, it is emotionally exhausting, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really rewarding too, because like I'll get, you know, messages or DMS or emails or whatever from people that are like, Oh, this got me through like this time or like, Oh, I was going through a really bad breakup and I listened to your music or I had one couple that was so sweet. They emailed me that they, um, I had that one of my songs, they took a trip together for the first time and they were on an airplane and they were sharing headphones and each one had one headphone and they were listening to one of my songs. And like, that was the moment that they realized they were in love with each other and told each other. 
And I was like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh my God. Um, and then they and played like, li- then they played liar and they broke up on that same trip. Yeah. yeah. And then they were like, mm, there's a lot wrong with this relationship. Yeah. Um, no, but, but so for me, I feel like as, as, as difficult as it is, I feel like if I want, if I want to connect with people in that way and I want people to feel seen in my music in that way, like my end of the bargain is that I also have to be quite vulnerable and, yeah. and that's just sort of only fair really if I'm asking people to like take this music and kind of incorporate it into their lives because music is so intimate and personal and and the ways that it soundtracks your life are so personal so it's sort of more of like a vulnerability exchange I feel like in some ways it's like it's a it's a way to connect with other human beings like hey I go through this and so do you so well, sometimes, yeah. I mean, I was I was playing, I mean, it's like we play music because we want to go through an emotional journey. Like, I yeah. think sometimes I'll put on my, you know, favorite sad song ever just because I want to connect with that sadness. You want to feel the pain. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you kind of. It's like, it's masturbatory in a sense, but you're yeah. like, oh my God, this is amazing. And the same thing with amazing, fun pup, pump up songs. Yeah. But uh, I, the other thing, though, I was thinking about with you, especially in the year of 2023, and, uh, you know, I believe this is art, but there's also a commerce part of this. And the music yeah. industry has gone through so many changes, even since you started. And before, I mean, we used to have a thing so called many. CDs. We used to have, like <laughs> vinyls coming back, but streaming services are so big. And I was listening to everything of yours on Spotify. Mm-hmm. And I think even with podcasting, there is such a fight for people's ears right now. Like, how do we, how do we let people know in 2023? And that's why I was like, oh, I'm so excited to have you on so (laughs) I can share something that I actually was moved by. But what do you notice about how the music industry is now and how do you fit into the music industry? Um, well, it's so funny because I feel like every, every iteration, um, like every every stage of the evolution of the music industry has like pros and cons. It, it really does. Yeah. And like when I think about, you know, for example, somebody like Bruce Springsteen, who they really they kind of they saw the potential and the talent and they kind of gave him a couple of albums with a very friendly budget <laughs> to kind of work through the kinks of being an, an up and coming artist. And they weren't expecting hits immediately. And they kind of were just like, we see the vision that literally does not exist anymore. <laughs> There's no yeah. version of a record label that's going to just invest in someone who doesn't come with their own audience and then like not expect immediate returns on investment. Um, partially just because there's so little money to be made at the end of it really at the moment. Um, but on the other hand, so few artists got heard during that time because the, the, I would, the barrier of entry was like radio and, you know, all of, all of these yeah. kind of tastemakers that like had to be the ones to stand between someone hearing your music and, and you making it. Now I feel like it's so much harder to get anyone to give you any level of a budget, like to have a real string section, for example, instead of just like mini strings, like having a label pay for that is impossible now. Um, Having like a real kind of like infrastructure behind you that's really difficult. It's you have to basically by the time they will give it to you, you no longer need it. You have enough of an audience on your own that yeah. you don't really need help. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, between like TikTok and and yeah, social and streaming, and there are so many ways for people all over the world to discover your music at any time. And it's sort of just like 
a little there's like a little bit of like a magical or just randomness to it now, which kind of sucks from a perspective of like you really there's nothing you can do and just sort of yeah. like happens yeah, yeah. or it doesn't. But it's also kind of cool. It's like you never know. Like But at least it's good that if somebody does discover you, you actually have this music to go mm-hmm. hear it. You know, it's like there's a lot of people that will talk big, you see them, and then there's no foundation when they actually go check out an artist. So I feel like, yeah. okay, you're ahead of the game on all of that. But I would, now I'm just laughing, thinking about Bruce Springsteen having to do TikTok. Having to do TikTok. 70s. Isn't that horrifying? Like, can you imagine? Well, can you imagine yeah. even before he was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I've got a big band. And like, but he or was- Or Joni Mitchell trying oh, to God. like- Like I try and think about when, I, when I'm making TikToks and like trying to engage, you know, with the audience, I'm trying to meet them where they're at. I mean, I don't feel pretentious about it. I'm just like, this is where people are. And I want to, you know, I want to connect with them. So there's nothing wrong with that. But like, when I think about when I feel very like, hello, fellow kids, when I'm making a TikTok, (laughs) I'm like, well, yeah, like none of the people that I listen to would know what the hell they're doing on this either. Um, But, you know, but it is it to your point, I think kind of my, my Zen about it at this point is like, I know that I'm making music I'm really proud of. Yeah. That's like what I'm here to do at the end of the day. And like the people who find it and appreciate it means the world to me. But I can't, I can't really spend, expend a whole lot of energy on like how people are going to find it or when people are going to find it. Like, of course, I would love for them to hear it. But my energy is mostly just focused on making sure that like I have a body of work that I'm really proud of. Cause that's the part that I can really control at this point, you know? So. Yeah, completely. And that's why it's interesting. You brought up imposter syndrome early, you know, is that I feel like even on this daily for me, I deal with that every day yeah. and then having to realize, well, at the end of the day, all I have is me. Like I can't mm-hmm. be anybody else. I'm going to try yep. to do what makes me laugh or what I respond to. And, and then yeah. you start, if you lean into that, yeah, you can sleep better at night. Um, back to the album, uh, spirit of the staircase. Yeah. Uh, first off, I just want to take the bullet, uh, for me has such a bound, like such an amazing, like where it actually makes me want to get up and do something because a lot of that. the album will make me kind of lay and stare at the ceiling. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) By the way, I I think that was in one of your descriptions about laying in a bathtub. And I was like, you know what? I'm not a big bath guy, but I will say I was just- yeah, long drive. Definitely. I cannot wait to take this on a trip to Arizona to see my dad again. But Oh, nice. uh, Yeah, no, it was like one of those things of uh, Take the Bullet for me kind of was just like this. uh, What is Take the Bullet about? Just to go through a couple of your songs for the audience. Oh, yeah. Well, so that song, I love that you love that one. That's one of my favorites. I think of it as like my James Bond soundtrack song. And in fact, when we were making that song, we went through and listened to a bunch of like different 007 theme songs because I was kind of like, (laughs) I knew that's kind of where I wanted to go with the production, like with like just kind of like a little bit over the top cinematic and like strings and stuff. Um, or just kind of like action movie theme, like Mission Impossible, any of those, you know. Um, but so the song itself is about um, similar themes to that you'll find elsewhere in the record. <laughs> it's like just <laughs> kind of being stuck in like a toxic cycle uh, in a relationship that you know is bad for you, but it's very like, you know, addicting or alluring for whatever reason and kind of admitting your own role in that of like, no, yeah, like I know exactly what I'm doing. I know that I know how this ends. I know this is not going to work out. I know I'm going to get hurt, but I'm just signing myself up for that because I'm so intoxicated by this person. So, 
Yeah. No, I, I mean, the cinematic thing is right. I think so many of your songs, I just felt very cinematic where I was like, God, I mean, that's the other thing. You got to license this thing out to every TV and movie. I mean, because I, I was like, God, we need, a new season, we need a new season of Euphoria out so we can put some songs in there. That would because, be my dream, honestly. I mean, yeah. I would but I could picture so it. I was like picturing like fast cut editing over like a yeah. you know an eight hour party that like one of your song goes behind. Yeah. Um, then we have the song Liar, which I know is getting a little traction right now. What yeah. does the song Liar mean or, or what is the interpretation? Well, that one makes me so happy that it's been the one that's kind of like taken off a little bit more on streaming just because that one was my baby and I kind of fought to make it like a single. It wasn't originally supposed to be one just because it is kind of like a, it's a ballad. It's kind of a slow yeah. burner and that it does, those types of things don't – it like speaking again to the pros and cons, like back in the radio days, like that would never have been a single or anything. But in streaming, it's a lot yeah. – people listen to streaming in a different way than radio and it doesn't have to be like a smash dance hit to connect with people. It can just be something that is more intimate. But yeah, that song is about um, kind of uh, being like, hey, so I know that by asking you to be in a relationship with me, I'm asking you to be in a relationship with a very fundamentally broken person. (laughs) So up to you, uh, your call. And it's funny because when I wrote that song, like I kind of was writing it from the perspective of me and the people that I've been with in the last few, like I was kind of just, it was sort of like a, an amorphous person. Like most of my songs take the bullet very much included are like extremely just my POV. But this was kind of just like, I guess like uh, an exercise in empathy and kind of just like putting myself in the shoes of all the other broken people that I've been with and kind of like imagining things from their perspective as well. So I feel like once we get to the age of 25, we're all completely broken. And I always feel bad about like the people that have to deal with you after the fact, you know, after that moment. That's what you get. When you're dating in your 30s, at this point, everybody comes with like a full set of baggage, a carry on, a check bag, a backpack. (laughs) And you always wish you could be like, I wish you knew me when. I wish you knew me back then. I was so chill. Yeah. I was was so hopeful. I was just so hopeful, you guys. Um, uh, No, that's amazing. Amazing. Uh, so uh, we, we've got this. And I also wanted to talk about, because you mentioned this earlier, and I will say, uh, you know, I was reading your NBA columns in The Guardian. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this shows you are, uh, you're a triple threat in a lot of ways. I, I mean, a lot of yeah. people will be singing, dancing, acting, but you've got singing, <laughs> production, and you write about the NBA. Write about how, the long, NBA. how long have you been doing that? How do you even get into that? And did that connect you with Golden State Entertainment, which you guys, what what she means, Golden State Warriors has an entertainment production company, which yep. I blew my mind when I yep. read this. Can you take <laughs> us through that separate journey than your music? Yeah. Well, it's just it's a really it was a really funny lesson for me, the whole NBA media thing, because it was such a good it was just such a good life lesson for me about like when you just love something and you have no agenda about it and you just spend time doing something that you just really love. Yeah. Like that's like a real recipe for success that I think I never understood. So basically I've been a musician my whole life. Like you said, I started when I was five years old. I've been doing it professionally since high school. That was just sort of my whole life identity. All my friends, everyone I dated, my whole entire life was music up until like in my early twenties when I started touring my drummer at the time had the NBA playoffs on in our green room on tour. And I kind of was just like bored and watching with him. I was not a sports person at all. 
Um, I was actually kind of the annoying artsy person that's like sport ball. <laughs> What's that? You know, like, um, and I hate those people now, but, uh, but so then I kind of just got obsessed because basketball is amazing. As you may know, um, it's the best. It's so entertaining. It's such a soap opera. Anyone who likes reality TV would love the NBA. Um, and I just got obsessed with it and, uh, kind of started getting a little bit of a following on Twitter, just like an NBA Twitter talking about it. Mostly just because I had no one to talk to in my real life about it because they were all just like pretentious musicians who didn't want to talk about sports. <laughs> um, and then when I moved to LA, some of my like internet friends I had made in the NBA became in real life friends. I moved here in 2017 and they all had podcasts and stuff and occasionally they would have me on as a guest and they were like, Claire, you should do this too. And I was like, no, 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 I'm a musician. I'm, I'm just here for fun. Like, And yeah, eventually – Guesting on podcasts turned into having my own show for Spotify. And through that show, my editor at The Guardian discovered me through that and Twitter, I guess. And my editor, literally my editor at The Guardian DM'd me on Twitter and was like, have you ever thought about writing about the NBA? And I was like, no, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> and he was like, well, I think you'd be really good at it based on like your voice on here. And like, I would love to just like assign you a piece and test it out. Um, and I've been on their staff ever since. It was like two years ago. Wait, do you remember what that first piece was? Yeah, it was um, my first byline for them was – well, my first byline like at all with my name on it was like a round table of like playoffs predictions, I believe. But my first solo piece was like uh, 20 things I learned in the NBA playoffs um, two playoffs ago. So um, (laughs) – and I was so nervous. I had never written an article or anything like that. And um, But I, I know a lot about the NBA and I really love it. And yeah, so it kind of just evolved. And then so funny. So like the the head of the label of Golden State Entertainment followed me on Twitter. I guess he told me originally for like my basketball takes because I just tweet about basketball and then discovered my music because I do promote it on there as well and was like, oh, like this is really good. And so then when they were signing artists for this new label project that they were starting, I had just happened to leave a label I was at for like five years, um, a few months prior and yeah, it was just sort of like serendipitous. Isn't I mean that's I that's I mean there's a lot of things about life I don't like, but that's one thing about life I do love is like the roundabout way that gets you to doing what you love again. That actually yeah. like, like and also just the little detours in life that you had no concept that you would ever you didn't even think you would want to ever write about the NBA. Like the fact no. that that happened that led you back to to me, uh, yeah to music. I that is kind of weirdly mind blowing if you really stop and think about that. It's super mind blowing. Um, <laughs> And it's such a good life lesson because it's like, basically, if you just do the things that you're passionate about and you love and enjoy and that like bring you joy, things will work out. That's the lesson for me, at least, is like it just it find you find your way onto the path that you're supposed to be on as long as you're being true to like yourself and following your own bliss. And like my thing is that I've learned and that I've been like preaching from a soapbox is like, I feel like actually everyone kind of knows why they're supposed to be like what they love and like what brings them happiness and joy, like whether it's their family or like a, a passion or whatever it is. And obviously the world makes it really hard for people to spend as much time as they, as they could and should on that stuff. But I feel like if you kind of operate from a place or like orient your life, be like, I'm going to try and spend as much time and energy doing the things that bring me joy and fulfillment. 
as I possibly can, as is reasonable, like possible, yeah. feasible in the day hours in the day that I have. I really do think that's kind of just like the way, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what this show is a product of. I was like schlepping as an acting teacher and an actor. And I always loved pop culture, music, movies, reality shows, all of that stuff. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that you could do this. So I started to do, I did this for free out of my, like a tiny room, just yeah. like didn't know anybody would listen. And like, but I had no clue. It was just like, oh, this is yeah. what I love to talk about. And, and it shocks me when I look back to think about, oh my God, I wish I knew this so much earlier in life to just yeah. go this and, and throw caution to the wind. But life is really hard and you have to pay bills. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I mean, I guess in terms of uh, NBA, what are you, what are you real? And by the way, do you have to be the biggest fan of the Golden State Warriors now? Do you, I mean, is there, no. do you have to be like, they're the best team out there? No, no. I think that's like, that's a question I've been getting asked a lot. But I think because, first of all, the label is a completely, separately separated operated independent entity yeah. under like a parent company umbrella but the label isn't connected to the team in any way i mean i've i've done fun things like i've gotten to visit chase center and that sort of stuff but like at the end of the day they're operated completely independently of each other um but also i think you know i i my NBA coverage and stuff, because like I'm, I mean, and they know this about me. Like I'm kind of a Lakers fan, is, is my team, and they Good. knew this from day one. Um, but even my Lakers fandom, it's just so different when you're covering the league because I feel like if anything, I'm harder on the teams that I want to see do well. You know, so it's like, yeah. of course, I would like to see the Warriors do well because I know people who work there and I really like them and I want them to be happy. And I feel the same way about the Lakers because from living in L.A., I've gotten to know sort of like their beat writers and their staff. And I'm like, I want those people to be happy. But at the end of the day, like I'm a fan of good basketball. I want to see yeah. the best teams compete and I want to see the highest level of basketball there is and whatever teams end up in that scenario will make me happy. So I'm not like a traditional fan in that sense because I also didn't grow up watching basketball. I didn't I don't have like a family legacy team. It's not like I'm like born yeah, and raised yeah, yeah. in LA and my parents like the Lakers. So I'm a huge LeBron fan and I'm a big fan of just like I love Steph Curry. I love LeBron James. So oh, seeing did you watch that Steph Curry documentary uh on Apple TV? Oh my gosh, I haven't watched it yet. Oh my God, you've so got to watch it. It just came I, I out this past year, but you would love it. Like I, I was just so I know blown I away by the passion and the work that gets you to where you are now, which you can actually relate to any kind of artistry like music. Yeah. But I mean, LeBron is another guy that I've watched documentaries on and stuff like Ooh, that. And just, just the work. Okay. Oh, I I can see. No, you're are back, you good? You're back. You're back. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let me just mark that. Um. Yeah, no, I just think there's so much artistry that goes even into sports that people don't realize also the work that goes in season after season. And especially for somebody like LeBron, who's been doing it for so long, he's considered a legend. It's wild. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I find these guys so inspiring because it's it's kind of the same thing where they just sort of like are so passionate about one thing that they just sort of like pour their whole heart and souls into it and by proxy end up inspiring and connecting to a bunch of different people, which again, like as an artist, I think it's a similar path in a weird way of just sort of like, yeah. if you do the thing that you're passionate about that brings you great joy and makes you feel fulfilled, then other people are going to connect with that experience. So 
I yeah, I love it. Claire, I that's love what both. we need. We need we need LeBron <laughs> with a pair of headphones listening to your album and get LeBron's reaction. That's the best moment of my that's, life. <laughs> that's what we need. We we're gonna get this out there. Um, but also in terms of like people like LeBron or in music, Taylor Swift, I always yeah. think about how exhausting it must be to be them because oh they God. have so much on their shoulders, not just in performance, but then in fandom and then haters and all of this stuff. And I feel like it's so hard to be creative in that space then or be good at your job when you have that much. Yeah. I being that famous, I know this seems counterintuitive maybe as someone who's like in entertainment, but being that famous sounds like my personal hell. There I, you, <laughs> I that sounds so horrible. I even even when I go to a co- like you know how some people they love like when they go to a coffee shop and like they know them and they know their order. Because yeah. they feel – I hate that, actually. I'm so, yeah. like, socially awkward. I'm like, please just give me my coffee and, like, treat me like you have no idea who I am. And even, like, the few times – like, I've gotten recognized, you know, here and there, not often. And that's always so flattering and stuff. But also I feel so, like, deer in the headlights, you know, because I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Like, like I'm yeah. just – I'm like, I didn't even know anyone was watching, you know. And so <laughs> I feel like – there's a certain level of fame where you can like adjust to it and it becomes normal. Like I've heard Sharon Van Etten. I don't know if you know her music. But oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. And I feel like she's at a really good level of fame and success where she can just sort of like, she can just mind her business and go grocery shopping and no one's going to notice or bother her. But she also can play, you know, a show with like 2000 people or 4000 people, whatever that, that would be great. I mean, I, that seems like a, an ideal level of fame and success, but like Taylor Swift, like she can't sneeze without it being headline news. Like that seems like a, a prison. I, I yeah. would not want that at all. It it really does. And then people are like, oh my God, is she going to write a new album about Travis Kelsey, that relationship? So then everybody has like a face to the name of any future songs. And it oh seems- Oh my gosh. I know like for Travis, an- can you imagine if they ever break? I was thinking about that. I was like, oh my God, he's not, he's going to have to retire. Like, yeah, what's he's he going to do? He's really trapped himself in certain ways. <laughs> Oh but also gosh. what you said, like going out, like I live in fear of being talked to by like a Trader Joe's cashier. Literally. Like I'm not good. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay here. on, yeah, like I don't know, like, but then there are so people that do so good at it. They make friends with everywhere they go and I, I can't do it. I keep my head down me. and I, and then when somebody tries to talk to me, I don't even, I'm like, yeah, it, uh, uh, it's wild. Um, I'm just like scared. I'm such a people pleaser. I think the, pro- I think the people who do really well, they don't care at the end of the day, like what people think. And so they're like. I am who I am and take it or leave it. I'm just like terrified of people being disappointed by meeting me or like being like, oh, she was such a, you know what I mean? So I'm just like, I'm so nice to the point where it's like exhausting all of my emotional (laughs) energy every time. (laughs) Cause I'm like, don't have a good experience. Like, like feel good about this interaction, please. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I apologize <laughs> way more than I should. Um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to ask, and I would be remiss just because we're talking about fame, is you know you were in the Chalice with Lizzo, and yeah. was there anything in 2011 to 2013? Was there anything at that time that where you were like, because you were all doing the same thing? Was there anything yeah. that set her apart? Because I do like, is it predictive where people go, or is it a happenstance? And I know it's a little bit of luck and a lot of talent. You know, are you surprised to see where Lizzo is out today? Is that today? Um, okay, I guess I would say I'm surprised in the sense that it it doesn't even really seem real that anyone can get that famous. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a level mm-hmm. of fame that's just like, who gets that famous? That's so crazy. However, of all the people that I've like interfaced with and worked with over the years, like her being the one to get very famous does not surprise me because 
first of all, she's very charismatic. Um, yeah. I feel like I learned a lot from her about like stage presence and stuff because she's just she's I'm I'm a bedroom pop singer at the end of like at, at my heart, you know what I mean? So like I I write very intimate songs that are very meaningful to me and I I love being on stage and performing, but I'm not like an entertainer with like a top hat and like a sparkly baton, you know, like yeah, that's you don't not have my a, nature. You don't have a flute. You're not bringing out a flute right. and doing like fun. I'm just flute, sort of like, you know. here are these songs I wrote. Hope you like them. <laughs> um, so that I learned that. But then also like, to be totally honest, like she really, 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 really wanted to be very famous. Like I think that's yeah. something that always meant a lot to her and that she always wanted very badly. Um, and that was evident, you know, from day one of working with her is that that was like she like being like a mega pop star was always the goal for her. And she yeah. was extremely dedicated to that goal. And I think to, to our earlier point of the conversation, like what you put your energy into and your and what you prioritize, you can make happen, you know, and I feel like we don't give ourselves enough credit for like if if what you really 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 want is to be a mega famous superstar like you can probably make it happen if if you care more about that than like you know other yeah. things yeah um and so you have to sacrifice a lot for that as well and i yeah. think we even see that with lizzo in this year especially you do have to mm -hmm. sacrifice a lot you have a bigger magnifying glass on you but yeah. it you know you do lose out on a couple of other things that i would imagine um yeah. but uh also, I, I guess so. No, the chalice reuniting like Destiny's Child at a certain point. <laughs> no, there won't, <laughs> no, there won't be any reunions there. <laughs> um, um, back to your music. I just wanted to know um, in terms of how you approach writing uh, and writer's block and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Do you put pen to paper every day? Do you, you know, like how do you, I mean, when's the last time you felt something that you're like, I've got to write this down? I mean, sometimes I'll literally be like lying in bed or something and I'll like just have something pop in my head. And then like I take voice memos. I do voice memos all the time. My notes app all the time on my phone. Like if I'm just out and I think of like a lyric or a little melody. Um, but I don't force – I know that that's, that's some people's, you know, work and method is that they're just like I'm going to force myself to write every day. And even if it's bad and I don't use it, I totally understand the like theory behind that and the methodology. But for me um, – I just sort of – I feel like I have such a creative brain and because I write for my other job, I am, you know, like working on that craft in a sense. Um, I don't force myself to write unless I feel inspired. Um, and then when I get inspired, it kind of just pours out of me. So, yeah. I mean, are we already at work on the the, the follow-up album, I guess, is what I'm getting to too? Um, I mean, I'm kind of always – I always – like I have a couple little ideas for things and stuff like that, but – um, this one was such an intense labor of love that took so long that I've kind of just been enjoying, um, like, yeah, working on the live show and kind of promoting the record and stuff. But for sure, in the next couple of months, I'll start getting back in the studio and, and writing again, just because I love being in the studio because it makes me happy. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always writing. I mean, cause like I said, I started writing songs when I was like five years old. So it's kind of the way I like synthesize the human experience, like more than like a, a thing that I do. It's just the way I experience the world is like through writing songs. Do you ever look back at uh, any of your earlier writings and go like, my God, I was on another level back then. Like, wow, I'm really <laughs> so impressed with what I was doing. Or were you like, this is shit. 
I mean, both sometimes. Um, <laughs> a lot of it, I'm like, oh God, I'm really glad that no one was hearing these things. But some of the stuff, like I have a couple demos that I recorded because I went to an arts high school and I was lucky enough to go to a, a school that had like a recording studio in the school that me and my friends would use after school and stuff. And so I made a couple record, like records that no one will hear um, in high school. And I'm like, uh, for a 16 year old, like, I feel like these songs are, are pretty yeah. good. Like, you know, I'm <laughs> kind of impressed sometimes with like what I was writing, you know, like 15, 20 years ago almost now. Um, but at the same time, yeah. And especially when I think about who the songs were about <laughs> and the boys I was dating when I was 16. Oh my or gosh. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, oh my what? God, girl, it's it's going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, when you date now, though, are people like, please don't put this in a song? Please don't feel any. Like, I mean, that's the other. I mean, have you had that experience now dating in Los Angeles? I think that, well, I mean, I've kind of, I've definitely, um, kind of there's like a disclaimer of like anything you say in relationship <laughs> can and will be used against you. Um, but I also think that uh, <laughs> Los Angeles has a lot of narcissists in it that no. are probably what are you, quite th- How quite dare thrilled. you? What are you talking about? Well, yeah. So I think if anything, probably the people I've dated are thrilled to have songs about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wonder if there's one guy that has like a full album of like different girls that have written one song yeah, and they can Spotify piece together playlist. like a... Yeah. <laughs> this is Randy's Spotify playlist of these everything These are all about me, heard. I swear. <laughs> I I'm the that. asshole in all of these songs. Yeah, You're So Vain by Carly Simon. Um, as we start <laughs> winding down here, I just wanted to look back at 2023 in a second of like, what has moved you? Like, what do you listen to? What do you watch? What do you read? Is there anything that stands out for you in 2023? Um, okay, so those are three three separate categories. What I listen to, honestly, like my my the record that I was the most obsessed with this year was that SZA record. Um, so good. So good. And like, especially that song, Nobody Gets Me. I really feel like that's one of those songs that is going to just live forever. Like, I think it's a classic song. It's immaculate. Um, There's a couple of just like individual songs, I guess, that I was listening to. Like, uh, like the Lana Del Rey song, Did You Know There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard. I love that song. It's amazing. That's a great album. That's an amazing album that yeah. I know got its, got its due, but it's still really, really solid. Like, Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so I mean, a bunch of different things, honestly. Um, I really liked the last Snow Allegra project that was last year, I guess, more so. Um, I've been listening to a lot of this this uh, artist called The Japanese House. I don't know if you've heard. Oh, of my it. God. Yeah, yeah. They just, uh, she actually has a, um, a new Spotify EP that just came out last week. Yeah. Oh, my God. Such, such amazing music. As far as watching, to be totally honest, besides Succession, which I'm still mourning the end of, I am a Nick- huge Succession head. Um, I just watched so much basketball that like if I watched a lot of other TV, I would spend so much time in front of a television. And I just I already because I already watched like one to two games a day, which is like two to four hours of basketball. And that's just so much TV. So to be honest, I don't (laughs) watch a ton of other TV. And then um, I've been reading this uh, David Byrne. The creativity book. Yeah. Like catching the big fish or whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, well, that's the, I think that's, is that the David Lynch book or oh, no, David Lynch? Oh my God. Did yeah, I say David, David Byrne? Yeah. But David Byrne does have a great book on creativity. You should check out. I was just, really good. I was just, I was honestly just reading about, about him and about, okay. Cause I'm a huge, uh, talking I'm a huge heads. fan of, yeah, I'm a huge talking heads. I, well, so I think this must be the place is like one of the greatest songs ever written. So I was, I was reading a uh, piece about the origin of that song, but 
Yes, David Lynch, not David Byrne, very different Davids, but also <laughs> but they kind would maybe of similar be friends. in certain. Yeah, I think they, they had maybe friends and get friends. along. I'm reading a David Lynch book called Catching the Big Fish, which is just a bunch of little kind of very short essays about creativity and and mostly about like meditation and stuff. So, um, that's yeah, I got into transcendental reading. meditation because of David Lynch. Actually, like really, that's, uh, yeah, that's I, so I, cool. I, yeah, no, it was, uh, and I read that book and it really inspired me, but, uh, that's, yeah. Also, would you ever consider doing, I know just rights wise, would you do a cover of this is, this must be the place? I would love to. So the only reason I haven't is because it's so perfect, um, yeah. that I, I just don't, I have to, when I do covers, I generally try and do, I know a lot of people do cover songs just as a tribute to how much they love the song, you know, and I, I totally get that. But for me, I only cover songs where when I hear the original, I hear things I would do differently and like that I would want to like bring to the table. Um, and all the covers I've done up to this point have been A, songs I've really loved, but B, songs where the original production, I felt like, oh, I would do this or I would do this. Yeah. With that song every element of it is so perfect. Even like the drum tone, like literally everything about it is perfection. Yeah. So I don't know what I would change, but maybe someday I'll, I'll get emboldened and I'll do something different with it. But I just well, think it's I, such a perfect song and so romantic. Those lyrics are so beautiful. Like, yeah, oh, I did. Man. a. Uh, I went through a talking heads phase this year where I started like going from front to back with like artists that I love and just listening yeah. to their entire catalog and kind of see where they like, you know, how the years change them. But the talking heads were just I mean, it just even got sometimes more beautiful as they went on. Yeah. And uh, that's another thing. They reunited for Stop Making Sense, got re-released in theaters, you guys, yeah. which I highly recommend. I don't think it's there anymore, but it's really fascinating and a bummer that they broke up, but I totally understand why. And it was interesting to watch them come back together, but revisit their music as well, as well as Tiny Deaths. Uh, Claire DeLune, this is her uh, amazing album for this project. You can go to tinydeaths.com. Um, you can also stream this music, which I'm going to make all of you guys do. Go follow her on Spotify. Go check her out on Apple Music. Go watch her on YouTube. All of the things, <laughs> because I do believe uh, this is something that needs to be heard by more people. And I, I really... I thank you so much for giving us all this time to talk about the artistry thank and to you. talk about your career, because uh, I don't think a lot of people realize the journeys that uh, people go on uh, doing something like this and sharing uh, these big feelings and thoughts. And <laughs> the album really uh, moved me as well as your other stuff, which you can find on Spotify as well. But, uh, you know, go listen to this album in particular. And I, I really do. I hope I talk to you again someday. I can't wait to see you live. That's what I'm excited for. I yeah. think you need to be at like the Gobi tent at Coachella, like 6 p.m. sunset, <laughs> like a really moody that would be sunset. Amazing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And I would love to talk to you again. Keep in touch. Yeah. So um, you know what? I'll, I'll hit you up when uh, <laughs> we got some big NBA stories and you can be the sports reporter on the scene <laughs> slash uh, atmospheric musician that yeah, uh, moves Everybody us. needs a sports reporter, atmospheric musician on staff. Yeah. So. <laughs> or you know what? I, I love that you might be the only one. That's I'm, I'm this whole time. I'm cornered. I was like, this is like, how do we, I want to sell her. I want to like, how do we do it? Like, you've got so much going for you, but thank you for spending all this time near the end of the year. Cause I know things are crazy, but you guys, tiny deaths, go check this out. You will not be disappointed. Just be prepared. You will feel feelings and uh, you've got to be okay with that. You're going to feel feelings and just know that that's okay. Push through it. Yes. And on the second listen, you're going to have a big smile on your face. Okay. Thank you um, so much. So, it's so sweet. I appreciate you. 
No, I appreciate you, Claire DeLune. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So Bad It's Good is a Betches Media production. The show is hosted and produced by me, Ryan Bailey, with Meditza Lopez and Sandra Fryer. Additional support provided by Sean Kilby, Jorge morales Pico, and Rebecca Steinberg. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Video promotion by Laura Valencia. Be sure to send us your emails at SoBadIt'sGoodWithRyanBailey at gmail.com and follow the show at SoBadIt'sGoodWithRyanBailey on Instagram. And for additional craziness, go to Patreon.com forward slash SoBadIt'sGood. Stay bad, baddies. Betches.